Okay, we're good. <laughs> Define good. We are not good. There is none who are good. <laughs> no, not one. No, not two. Especially us two. Definitely not us two. Sorry, Heidi. She's going to leave that in. It's going to end up in the episode. We deserve it. <laughs> Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. This is Bobcast or something. Something cast. I am Andrew Smith or something. I am Caleb Castro or something. We are taking a ride today on the Wayback Machine. Woo, throwback. Yeah, we're going back to doing what we used to do on this show a long time ago when it was good and when people cared. And what is that thing? Is it anything that happens to be wonderful, Andrew? It's wonderful, but it takes some work. Well, thankfully we have God to help us. Ah, yes. We are returning after a long, long time to our read-through and discussion of the wonderful works of God. Wah, 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 wah. The short, <laughs> systematic summary of theology by Herman Bovink that was republished a couple. Uh-oh, uh oh, we can't we can't say republished here. We just did an episode about republication. It was reprinted Yay. a couple of years ago by Westminster Seminary Press in Philadelphia. So is available if you need a copy. It's also available in digital and various formats. Also under the name Our Reasonable Faith. But we're going back to where we started, which was reading through and talking about this book. We do apologize for the amount of time that it has taken to return to the wonderful works of God. We know that some of you have uh, asked about it, and we did hear you. We were just trying to wrap up a good spot there on our series in the Covenants. Um, and uh, in the middle of us trying to take care of things for school, Andrew's graduation, uh, internships, and whatnot. But we have not forgotten about it. And I think that the little hiatus in between the past several series and uh, us returning to it now has actually been really beneficial. Uh, Andrew and I were just talking about this earlier, that uh, it's given us a lot more time to study, um, to have a lot more rounded base to address some of these things, and perhaps in a little bit more uh, simplicity or clarity. But with that, we want to uh, point us back to where we had been in the wonderful works of God. We had looked through the uh, the previous chapters, basically what you call uh, the essential or foundational things, uh, prolegomena. Um, we have gone through basically man's chief end in the first chapter. We looked at revelation and the knowledge of God, how we are to know God from his general revelation in nature and his special revelation through the word in Christ. We spoke about the doctrine of scripture, and then we talked about the relationship between scriptures and confessions. So you can take a look at those uh, in uh, the previous episodes on wonderful works of God. But what are we dealing with today, Andrew? Well, if we look at all those previous sections, they basically... If we were to summarize them under one heading, it would be revelation. Basically, how is God known? And we are now at a major pivot point in this book, 
We are in chapter 9, and we are taking up the issue of the being of God. And so this pivot, we're moving from basically a theory of revelation to the content of revelation. What has God actually revealed about himself? As we come to this, Bob Inc. does something which we like, something which we've done often on this show. He talks about our Reformed Confession. Specifically, he opens up with some discussion on the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession and how they're structured and how they work together and how they're different. If you're following what he's doing, he's been saying, if we're looking at Revelation and how God teaches us of himself, how we are able to know him, and how he has uh, provided this in his word, and that the confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, uh, as well as the Canzadort as a supplement to Belgic Confession, Article 16, how they are faithful summaries of what scripture teaches. We want to keep that in mind, that they are a derivative authority from scripture as helpful ways to articulate our faith. So he's going to use the phrasings and the methodology, you could say, the interests and concerns of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession to specifically articulate now what it is we believe about God. What is the content of our faith? From the outset here, uh, I want to just briefly define three terms that we're going to come across through here. Uh, actually, four terms. Just really fast. Uh, we'll make mention of them quite a bit throughout here. But just to give kind of a roadmap here, the being of God. Uh, so a being is simply, we could say, something that exists. As far as essence, we're talking about what something is, or in this case, what God is. Substance, that which comprises something's essence. So in this case, though, uh, God being without components, we think about his substance as being first absolute. Again, not components. It's absolute, concrete, real. And he is a living God. Secondarily, his substance is deity, pure deity. Attributes, a word that we'll go through quite a lot towards the end of this chapter, are what you can call the perfections of God. They are God's nature. So we'll, we'll dive more into these uh, and we'll specify a, a bit more of those broad definitions as we go. So when he talks here about the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, they basically present two different ways to approach Revelation, to approach the knowledge of God. The Heidelberg Catechism starts from the perspective of faith, and it's essentially... And you'll notice this if you read and study the Heidelberg Catechism. It's mostly first person, either first person singular, I this or I am this or I believe this or we first person plural we believe this or this is true about us essentially starting with faith and then taking up the content of revelation and ask how how has this affected us what has this done for us whereas the approach of the Belgic is more in terms of you know, starting again from a position of faith, but instead of the more experiential approach, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? More making an orderly account from scripture, the content of our faith, the content of revelation. And the approach that is being taken here is more in line with the Belgic, the giving an orderly account from scripture. Now, this is not to say that Bob Inc. does not treat the other. If you've been with us if you've been reading wonderful works you know very much that 
He is about taking this doctrine and making it practical and, and telling us what it means for us and what God has done for us. This is, after all, a book about God's wonderful works. But here, taking a more systematic approach and actually starting in the very same place that the Belgic Confession does now in this section, dealing with the being of God. Yeah, and the Belgic Confession, Article 1, perhaps one of the most beautiful uh, openings of confessional documents. Article 1 is uh, regarding the only God. It says, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, Invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. So this gives us a very comprehensive position, a very comprehensive uh, statement of what it is we believe concerning God. And yet there's a good bit of terms in here which may be somewhat muddy. Uh, Maybe we're familiar with them, but we don't have a technical or concrete understanding of them or or what's so remarkable and significant about confessing who God is, according to how we understand him from what he has revealed. At the bottom of page 112 of the Wonderful Works, uh, and speaking of what's going on with the confessions, Bobbing says that in this confession, you note it says, we all believe with the heart. In this way, we're seeing it as a collective confession of the church, is the, the Christian not in isolation, but in fellowship with all his brothers and sisters. There's no lone gunslingers in church. We find ourselves in a context of being joined to the church, to a larger fellowship in Christ. He says at the very, very bottom of that final sentence, it is a true Christian confession here that we have containing the summary of the doctrine of God and of the eternal salvation of souls, both personal and then for all of his people. The doctrine of God, he continues on the next page. He says, the confession is the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, his son, and that is eternal life. Now, earlier in the wonderful works in, in the first two chapters or so, Bobbing had spoken about theology uh, as a science. And really, this right here is more of what he had been getting at, that the object of theology is God. The object of learning about all these things in scripture is God. And God is a being. God is personal. God is existing. God is. And it's in the context of understanding who God is that we know then not just an intellectual knowledge, which really a lot of, you know, a lot of us reformed people get swayed to very often. We, we, we like intellectualism. We like doctrine. We like theology as a study. But theology as a science for Bobbing, as he says in the second paragraph on page 113 in the middle of there, is that this knowledge is a matter of not only the head, but also of heart. It does not make us more learned. So a knowledge of God, as we've said before in previous episodes, is not, in the first place, an intellectual thing, but it makes us wiser, better, and happier. And he's speaking of this in terms of blessedness and eternal life. So the knowledge of God is for a knowledge of life. It's truth for life. It's value, uh, as he says earlier at the top of page 112, a value for the mind and the heart. And it safeguards us from argument and idle speculations. Right. I think we can see this playing out in the world around us when much of what considers itself to be theology or biblical scholarship does not come from a position of faith but rather comes from a position of rationalism, of reason, of the neutral, supposedly secular 
study from outside and evaluating the validity of theology or of God or of his word. Yeah, so theology is basically, in the Christian life, uh, as opposed to maybe, say, monasticism, isn't only a contemplative life. It's a present reality of life, present reality of a future consummate glory, you could say. Yeah, we we are already raised to a new life, as we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. But before we take up this knowledge of God and what God has revealed about himself, we have to ask a more fundamental question, which Bob Inc. does in the second section of this chapter. Can God be known? And there is a very popular and you might even say predominant school of thought in our day that says, no, God really can't be known. This would be a school of rationalism which lends itself to agnosticism this is the idea that to quote bob inc on page 114 it is said that the knowledge which is available to the human mind is limited to the empirically observable phenomena and is then argued that it is a contradiction to hold on one hand that god has personality mind and will and on the other, to maintain that he is nevertheless infinite, eternal, and absolutely independent. So first, we have this idea here that knowledge is limited by external phenomena. I think you kind of see the origin of this in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and then those that came after him. This rationalism, this knowing things by reason and determining things on what can be observed and sort of this science as we often know it or talk about it now as the driver of things. And so they would assert in this rationalist school that if God is infinite, eternal, independent, and these sort of things, then then how can he be known to us? How can that gap between us and him be bridged? So in, th in this question, just to also relate it to our own time, these ideas of what's really a skepticism, even then as Bobbing would refer to this too, this skepticism of if we can actually know God leads in the same way to even asking the question of whether a knowledge of God is even necessary or if it's meaningful. In more modern uh, 20th century discussions of this topic, can God be known? It's been referred to as God talk. Does God talk actually have any content? Uh, is it purposeful or are we just talking about some abstract concept? And you see that much more present today, particularly in atheism. Right. Well, Bob Inc. anticipates some of these objections, continuing on page 114, uh, to this question of can God be known? He says, to this we can readily reply that in very fact, there can be no knowledge of God in the mind of man unless God, whether in a general way in nature and history or in a special way in his son, has revealed himself. If, however, God has so revealed himself, it follows naturally enough that he can be known to that same extent to which he has done the revealing. So the answer basically, well, yes, if God does reveal himself, if he makes himself known to us, then he can be known by us. So, Ben, what are the implications, though, if someone still uh, says, okay, but there's like no way to really prove that? You know, uh, if someone still has the objections to if God actually reveals himself or say that, uh, well, there's natural explanations for this 
what you call general revelation around us. There's, uh, you know, scripture or your, your Bible is just human documents and fairy tales. You know, Bavink actually addresses that and continuing on with that same paragraph there, the largest paragraph on page 114 in the middle. If someone were to maintain that he in no way and by no means has revealed himself, the implication would be that the world has eternally existed alongside of God and independent of him and that he could not reveal himself in it and through it. And the further implication of that would be that we ought never again to speak about God. So again, as I had mentioned earlier, this God talk then ceases to be meaningful because this word would be but a hollow sound having no ground or basis in reality. And so this skepticism, as we said a moment ago, is what turns out to be, Bobbing says, in practice, identical with atheism. Or a word he uses here, agnosticism. Yes, the skepticism or agnosticism. Agnosticism, he actually even defines there as the doctrine of the unknowableness of God. So he refers to agnosticism not merely as, as persons, as Gnostics, but as a theological position. What they're asserting about God is that he is not knowable. And likewise, atheism is the denial of the existence of God, which is, again, a theological position. So what's the problem with this? How, do we, how would we address this kind of thing, Andrew? Well, for one thing, we have to ask ourselves when we hear things like, well, how do we know that God has really revealed himself in this way? What about these other explanations? We come to this as this week, I'm preparing an exhortation on creation and the fall. And are we not echoing the words of the serpent there? Has God really said we're reintroducing this idea of the devil's first lie here. And in addition, I think for maybe at least in the sense of agnosticism or atheism, it really attests to already the inconceivability of God or his incomprehensibility more specifically, that what seems so incredible to the unregenerate and even atheistic mind is that, well, it's it's impossible for God to exist. Something that great that you're talking about, this being that has infinity that's unchanging that that created everything out of nothing you know that can be everywhere at once all these various things that you talk about that's just that's dumb when you think about that it's like okay there, there's already a way in which they're admitting this great distance between god and man right we can't comprehend god and that's that's going to be bobbing's point and going forward too even then as you were saying our first parents uh, adam and eve in the garden there's already then a thinking too little of God by basically conceiving him as something that can be better comprehended in the mind as a man that can be outwitted, that man can be risen up to the perfections and glory of God. That itself is a denial of God's own majesty and how far beyond he actually is. Right. There has always been from the garden, the temptation for man to put himself in the place of God. And that's really kind of what we see in this rationalism and skepticism and agnosticism is man putting himself in the judgment seat and looking at what God has revealed about himself and saying, nah, basically saying, because I don't observe this, I can't comprehend this. It must not be. So it's an ironic attestation while man's trying to elevate himself at the same time, he's already acknowledging the vastness of God. But then we have to ask a question as we're looking at this issue of whether or not God can be known. 
Is it not wrong to at least somewhat feel, even as Christians, or believe that there is a sense in which God cannot be known, at least not known completely? And this is where Bavink turns next. He turns to a doctrine. It's something that we saw in the Belgic Confession, a word that appears there, whom we call God eternal, and then this one, incomprehensible. So there is a Orthodox and Christian way to talk about how God is incomprehensible or how God is transcendent. Yes, in this sense, when we're saying incomprehensible, he uses a certain word such as his fathomableness. God is infathomable. God is transcendent. So God is so beyond. Uh, and this includes then what can be known of him. In this regard... Though Bob Inc. is speaking of a great distinction between the top of page 115, in that first full paragraph there, the middle, he says, We ought to make a distinction between God's knowableness and fathomableness, that is, his incomprehensibility. So, in other words, knowability does not equal incomprehensibility. Incomprehensibility is speaking more of that God cannot be entirely and exhaustively grasped by the mind. Man cannot have all-encompassing, exhaustive knowledge of knowing every single thing about him, such as, say, maybe we can learn everything about uh, audio science or how a book is made. We cannot get the fullness of this knowledge, yet there is a manner in which he is knowable. Right. A manner in which he is knowable and has made himself known. While we cannot know God completely, we cannot know everything there is to know about God, that does not mean that we can't have real knowledge about God and true knowledge about God. We don't have all of it, but we have what we have. We have what he has revealed. Yes, and we can see these things already in Scripture there's one manner then of what we're saying following Bobbing here is that God can be known, but he cannot be entirely exhaustively known by man. And we see this from, for example, Romans eleven thirty three. Uh, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Or Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, who has known the mind of God. Yet on the other hand, we also have passages like, say, in John fourteen nine. That says, from the words of our Lord, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Or First John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So we have, then, the ability to know on one end, but also not the ability to entirely know, which is where Bobbing is going to be going first, how vast and beyond uh, measure God is. So we have these two realities, both of which are true. We have that, yes, in a certain sense, God is incomprehensible. He cannot be known completely, and yet he does make himself known. And as Boving puts it in the last sentence before the section break on page 115, for there is certainly no book in the world which to the same extent and in the same way as the Holy Scripture supports the absolute transcendence of God, 
above each and every creature, so this incomprehensibility, and at the same time supports the intimate relationship between the creature and his creator. So, we have here that God is transcendent, he is incomprehensible, and yet he is in relationship with us. These are not a contradiction. We would say this contrary to the agnostic objections. Yes, God is beyond us, but he has chosen to relate to us. It's this voluntary divine condescension that we talk about a lot on this show. I really like how he transitions from this point here. So starting that next section under the division on page 115, on the very first page of the Bible, the absolute transcendence of God above his creatures comes to our attention. So he is, of course, then speaking about God's free act of creation. Without strain or fatigue, he calls the whole world into existence by his word alone. And so even though he is absolutely exalted, lofty, and glorious above all, he creates. And he's going to be involved in that creation. And he's going to continue operating in that creation. Real quick on this word transcendent, that may be a familiar word. Uh, that's something that we do have a sense of and hear often. Transcendence could be, I think, defined really well according to scripture from Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises and doing wonders? So the answer is, of course, none. He alone is God. And so we're going to be keeping this in mind then. None is like God, ultimately, as we go through the next two sections. Bob Inc. in the section of page 115 to 117 unpacks what he has proposed here, this transcendence of God and yet God in relationship with his people. We see, first of all, that God reveals himself in creation and then sustains this creation by his providence. So the paragraph at the end of page 115, transitioning to 116, Nevertheless, this same sublime and exalted God stands in intimate relationship with all his creatures, even the meanest and smallest. What the scriptures give us is not an abstract concept of God, such as the philosopher gives us, but puts the very living God before us and lets us see him in the works of his hands. We have but to lift up our eyes and see who has made all things. All things were made by his hand, brought forth by his will and his deed, and they are all sustained by his strength. Hence everything bears the stamp of his excellences and the mark of his goodness, wisdom, and power. And among creatures only man was created in his image and likeness. Only man is called the offspring of God. So what we see here is that God has created us and he continues to uphold and rule and govern this world. Again, we call this the doctrine of providence. But then Bavink goes on to talk about how God makes himself known to us. Basically, if God is this transcendent God and creator, but also has this intimate relationship to us, well, how is that gap bridged? So one of the things he talks about is anthropomorphism. This is basically a literary device, a way in which something is spoken about as human that isn't actually human. So, for instance, when we see in scripture things like having eyes and ears or hands and feet being ascribed to God. Now, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, did have these things. But there are times in scripture where these are referring to not the incarnate Christ, and this can often create 
difficulty for people in thinking about the doctrine of God. These are anthropomorphisms. These are using things that we as humans understand, things about us, to help us to understand something about God. Or even the idea that God has emotions. So, for instance, when it is said that God regrets something or is sorry that he's done something, this is not emotions in the same way we experience them because God is unchangeable. We'll get back to that here coming up. But basically, this is accommodated language. This is God revealing himself to us in a way that we can grasp and in a way that we can understand. Yeah, that's a nail on the head there with that. That's a big phrase to keep in mind here, that God accommodates himself. And and so that's where you were speaking of earlier, Andrew, of how God is, so to speak, bridging the gap between God's incomprehensibility and his knowability and man's capacity to actually rightly know him and respond to his revelation. God condescends and reveals to himself in manners in which we understand. And so sometimes, like you were saying, this is by language or by things in human experience, things in facts of history. There's things around us in this world, as we've spoken of earlier in, in the conversation on general revelation, things around us in this world, in this life that do teach us aspects about God. Though it's a different question, again, as we've also said before, than uh, if, if this kind of revealed knowledge or general knowledge of God is sufficient for a foundation of faith, which it's not for fallen man. In terms of, uh, again, anthropomorphism, it's a little bit funny in that, uh, you know, we're talking about accommodation. Some have compared, such as uh, Calvin, John Calvin, had spoken of accommodation as being like baby talk. God talks to man with, you know, really simple Google Gaga kind of terms in order to not to be irreverent. But because man has such a low understanding, man is able to understand that even the most learned man, the most intellectual person you could think of on this planet, still has to be spoken to with cooing and pet phrases, if you will, uh, in order to even get the slightest understanding of God. Nonetheless, these comparisons, you know, they, they do give us a basis then for understanding who God is and what he's like, according to which he has revealed to us. And so this is where we can then make sense of attributes. Those perfections or things of him we'll speak of in our next episode are perfections uh, of God that we can understand in some way according to this life and world around us. We can make some sense of it by uh, what we call analogy. We'll get at that in a moment as well. Now, in terms of terminology and these distinctions between terms we make, so we've talked about God's transcendence and how he's above and beyond our full capacity to understand, talking about the ways in which he can't be fully known. But there's another term that Bob Inc., he kind of introduces it late in the game here, but talking about this relationship, and this is referred to in terms of God's imminence. I'm going to spell it because it sounds like other words <laughs> that are spelled similarly. It's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. -E, so imminence with an I, referring to the closeness of God, the nearness of God, the relationship that he has with us. So we have God's transcendence, but we also have his imminence. And it's important to keep these categories in mind because Bob Inc. warns us of the consequences of neglecting one or the other. So if we lose God's transcendence, we have either pantheism or polytheism. If God 
is not beyond us, if he is not above our capacity to understand, then this drags God down to us, makes him like us. So then we either have pantheism where all is in God or God is everywhere. God is everything. God is associated with his creation. Or then we have polytheism. Well, if God is this way, then other things can be God like he is. So that's the problem if we deny transcendence. But then if we lose imminence, if we lose that God has related to us, that God is close to us, we have either deism, so this idea that God basically uh, did uh, set it and forget it on the world. He made the world, made us, and then just left us to our own and doesn't really care about us. Or we have the agnosticism that we mentioned before that, well, we just throw in the towel, we can't know God, or atheism, that there really is no God at all. And so it's important to maintain both of these, the imminence and transcendence, because if we lose either, we've lost the plot completely. And I want to underline uh, actually something you said a second ago, so it's not missed. You had spoken of uh, when talking about God's imminence in terms of deism and atheism, that this is uh, akin to bringing God down. It's like bringing God down, making him more like man or relativizing him. And in that same way, it raises man up as God. Yeah, just, just to underline what you're saying with that, how important that really is of maintaining both transcendence and imminence. Uh, without God's transcendence, creature or creation is made God. And without uh, imminence, well, God is obliterated uh, in its worst possible scenario of atheism. Best case scenario, he's an absentee landlord. Worst case scenario, he's not there at all. Yeah, and man is uh, supreme. And that's actually where a lot of people have fallen into uh, the philosophical type of atheists that, you know, watch YouTube videos and uh, the famous atheists like Bertrand Russell or Christopher Hitchens. When it comes down to it, their whole position is basically God is not worthy of man. You know, man is essentially God in that sense. He is the height of creation. Right. It's where we see the runaway humanism of our day mm -hmm. taking over. Mm -hmm. So we have a little more work yet to do in this chapter. Um, we're going to talk about the attributes of God, but we're going to do that in a subsequent episode. So for now, we're going to go ahead and pause. Uh, we hope you'll join us again next time and we'll continue this discussion of God's attributes. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed Getting back into wonderful works of God, finally. You can contact us if you have any questions or comments, as always. And, Caleb, any last words? Uh, no, not really. I think that uh, you've covered it. I don't have any uh, witty witticisms or uh, fancy jokey jokeisms. Uh, we'll save that for next time. Well, all right, then. Tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.